We'll hear argument next in number 90-1390, General Motors Corporation versus Evert Romaine. Mr. Geller. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, up until 1982, employees in the state of Michigan who reached retirement age with a job-related disability were entitled to collect workers' compensation benefits and retirement benefits, even though both workers' compensation benefits and retirement benefits were intended to compensate an employee for the same exact wage loss. In many cases, this allowed retired employees to earn more money after retirement than they would have earned if they had continued to work. Now, needless to say, this so-called retiree problem was quite costly to employers. It was considered by many government officials to be the single biggest liability to maintaining and attracting business to the state of Michigan. The Michigan legislature responded to this problem in 1981 by passing a statute that authorized employers to coordinate workers' compensation benefits with various other benefits provided by employers. Under the 1981 statute, which became effective on March 31, 1982, employers were allowed to offset workers' compensation benefits against the amounts that an employee was otherwise receiving from employer-sponsored wage replacement programs such as pensions and Social Security. Now, a few years after the 1981 statute went into effect, the Michigan Supreme Court held in a case called Chambers, unanimously held, that the coordination provisions applied to all payments of workers' compensation after March 31, 1982, regardless of when the employee happened to have been injured. The court reached this conclusion by relying on the plain language of the 1981 statute, the structure of the statute, and the legislative purpose in requiring coordination of benefits in the first place. Now, the Chamber's decision was immediately attacked by employee groups in the state of Michigan, and efforts were made to overrule it legislatively. Almost two years later, in May of 1987, the Michigan legislature passed a statute abolishing coordination of workers' benefits <clears throat> for employees injured prior to March 31, 1982. But the legislature was, was not content simply to abolish coordination of workers' compensation uh, benefits prospectively. It went much further. The 1987 statute explicitly announced that the Michigan Supreme Court's decision in Chambers was erroneously decided, had erroneously interpreted the intent of the 1981 legislature. And to remedy this perceived error, what the uh, Michigan legislature did in 1987 was to repeal the 1981 coordination provision retroactively and required employers to make refunds with interest all employees whose benefits had been co lawfully coordinated during the five-year period that the 1981 statute had been in effect. Now, petitioners did not challenge the 1987 statute to the extent that it affected the amount of workers' compensation benefits payable prospectively. 
But they claim that the retroactive provisions of the statute uh, violated the Contracts Clause and the Due Process Clause of the Federal Constitution to the extent that it required employers to go back and reassess their workers' compensation obligations for the years 1982 to 1987 under a completely different set of rules than were in effect during that period of time. The Michigan courts rejected this federal, these federal constitutional claims, and we've renewed them in this court. Mr. Geller, what is the contract exactly that you Contra- say was impaired? The contract is the contract of employment between employers in the state and these employees. Well, if you look back at the original employment contract with people who were hired before 1981, who were injured and put on disability before then, I assume under the terms of the original uh, program, there would be no coordination of benefits. There was no that coor- was the original understanding. Well, the, there was no coordination of benefits at that time, Justice O'Connor. So how right. can that contract because be impaired? I think because the terms of the contract, we, we allege, Your Honor, are that employers will make workers' compensation benefits to disabled employees in whatever amount is lawful at the peri- during the period of time of disability. After all, the amounts that may be lawful will vary in the future based upon what the legislature determines in light of existing events. It may go up, it may go down. The contract obligation is to pay whatever the amount is that is lawful during the, every subsequent period of disability. And that was what we, what we assert was the contractual obligation and the contractual expectation. Now, at the time that these employees became injured, there was no coordination. But subsequently, there was coordination, and the employers satisfied their contractual obligation by paying coordinated benefits during that period of time. Well, I think you could certainly argue that the contract was that of the original understanding between the employer and the employees, that they'd get what the law provided when... when I don't think that can be argued in this uh, case because... When they were disabled and started receiving the benefits. Well, first of all, Your Honor, I think the terms of the contract are, are essentially a question of state law. I don't think you can make that argument in this case because we know from the Michigan Supreme Court's definitive decision in the Chambers case that the benefits could go down as well as up, and that well, would be consistent with the contract. for purposes of a contract clause um, assertion, is it purely a matter of state law, or is there a federal law component to there's a, federal, there's a federal law component in determining whether the contract has been impaired. You have to determine, of course, what the contract is in order to determine whether subsequent legislation impairs it. And what we say is that the terms of the contract here, as is shown by the consistent experience in Michigan under the workers' compensation statute, is that the employers are not promising to pay any specific amount in the future. They have promised to pay whatever the amount is that is lawful for subsequent periods of disability. And that's, of course, exactly what General Motors did here and for between 1982 and 1987. Mr. Geller, are the respondents in this case members of a class? No, this is not a class action, Your Honor. So uh, when when did each of these people go to work for General Motors and for... They went to work uh, well before the 1981 statute was passed. Um, although they did not become disabled, at least in the case of one of the respondents, until right before the 1981 statute was. What were the terms of their contract? Was it? Uh, it was an at-will. At-will contract. Yes. yes. I think when, be- when you say lawful, you mean uh, the the absolute minimum that could be required by law. Is that correct? No, they satisfied their obligations during 19. During right. The period that's 19, what you mean when yes, you say the contract yes, was to pay yes. what was lawful at the that's time. That's right. They satisfied completely their obligations under the existing law during that period of time. 
represented uh, by a union? Was there a collective bargaining contract? There was a collective bargaining agreement, yes. Well, how could it have been at will? The collective bargaining agreement covered terms and conditions of employment. Well, I know, but I suppose it probably provided that you couldn't be fired except for cause. I suppose. You suppose that's an at-will contract? I'm not familiar with the specific terms. There are people Well, don't who, say it's an at-will contract. I think these employees may have been at-will at will employees. There are other employees who are not. I don't think it's relevant to the, to the resolution of the case, though. Um, so, so the essence of the contractual provision that you're arguing here is that the employers are liable to pay what's required for that pay period. Exactly. They get away with that. Exactly. And, and that contract is based on long tradition and usage yes. in, in Michigan? It's, it's based on that. It's based on the fact that workers' compensation is simply one form of compensation that's paid to employees in return for their promise and to work. Every other term of the contract, unquestionably, every other form of compensation, I think we would all agree, is pursuant to the contract. Well, there had been in Michigan some retroactive adjustments uh, of, of workers' compensation benefits uh, over very minor manners, matters and, and reaching back just one legislative session? Or I don't believe so, Justice Kennedy. I believe not. I think it's always been perspective. Absolutely. I think part of the problem in this case, this is an extraordinary, extraordinary statute. I think it's important to emphasize the extraordinary nature of this statute. Never before in the 75-year history of workers' compensation in Michigan, and far as we know, never before in the history of workers' compensation in any state, has a leg- legislature ever gone back raised the workers' compensation benefits for past closed periods and imposed the obligation retroactively on employers to pay those benefits. Now, the, and never before in our, in our view has a, this court ever upheld a statute of that nature, a purely retroactive statute of that nature. Now, the respondents attempt to defend this statute by trading on an ambiguity in the word retroactive. As Justice Scalia's opinion in the Georgetown Hospital case a few years ago noted the word retroactive is applied to two quite different types of statutes. One type of statute um, is purely retroactive in the sense that it changes what the law was in the past. It it reaches back and alters the past legal consequences of already completed transactions. Now, those laws are said to be retroactive in the primary sense of the term. Now, other more common laws contain elements of both retroactivity and prospectivity. They affect the future legal consequences of past events. These laws are said to be retroactive in the secondary sense of the term. Now, respondents' briefs are full of statements suggesting that the Michigan legislature has frequently enacted retroactive laws in the workers' compensation area, and that this court has frequently upheld such retroactive legislation. But all of the instances that they rely on, without exception, involved laws that were retroactive in the secondary sense of the term. In other words, the legislature had from time to time increased or altered the amount of workers' compensation benefits payable prospectively, although it made those laws applicable to people who who had suffered pre-existing disabilities. Now, that's a quite different type of law than we have in this case. Mr. Geller, may may I ask, supposing uh, in 1985 that the Chambers case had been decided the other way, then the company would have had to come up with the past due money. But that would have been because of the, the, the effect that of the That would have been a construction of the 1980s. What, what if the legislature, while the case was pending, had passed this very same statute and said, we don't want the Supreme Court to make a mistake, 
So we will say this is what we meant back in 1981 or whatever it was. Would you have the same attack? I on think that we'd attack? have the same attack, although I think our reliance interest would be marginally weaker because here well, there's we have no difference in the reliance interest. Well, there is a the money in both cases. Well, except that here we have a definitive construction of the 1981 statute by the okay. Michigan Supreme Court. But, but, but you're challenging not just payments since 1985, right. but all the way back. I think for the period from 1981 so, to be the same. I don't see analytically how it would be any different if the statute had been passed just before the Michigan Supreme Court had acted. I think we would have much the same arguments. I think our case is even stronger, though, Justice Stevens, because we do have a definitive construction in 1985 of this law. And it was only two years later that the court, that the Michigan legislature says the 1981 statute didn't mean that. Well, but we know for a fact reaction. that it did mean what the, the Chamber's court Wasn't said. Wasn't there some prompt reaction to that decision? So that there was a prompt reaction to the Chamber's decision, but it wasn't until 19 months later that the uh, statute was passed over. Would it. you... Uh, and, <laughs> Suppose the 80s, in the 87, they just, uh, they just made the new law prospective. Yes. Change. We would have no cha challenge to that. It's just the Absolutely. going back in to fact, 81? The it's just going back to 81? 81. That's right. In fact, the 1987 law, Justice White, was prospective and retroactive. We have not challenged the prospective aspects of the law. Uh, let me just say, and answer Justice Stevens' question, that uh, there was an immediate reaction to the Chamber's decision. But the, legend, the bills that were introduced in the Senate and the House of Representatives in Michigan did not all provide for retroactive liability. The bills that were introduced in the Senate provided only for prospective changes in the, in the coordination rules. And it was not until eight days before the bill was actually passed in 1987 that a conference committee agreed to put in this retroactive provision. Now, the court below uh, gave two reasons for rejecting our contract clause claim. Uh, the first reason, which took up only a single sentence of its opinion and was not otherwise explained, was the assertion that workers' compensation benefits are not contractual and they're therefore not protected by the uh, contracts clause against legis subsequent legislative impairment. We believe, and we got into this a little bit already, that this is inconsistent with the undisputed facts concerning the nature of workers' compensation in Michigan, and, and contrary to many cases of this Court construing contractual obligations under the Contracts Clause. Now, respondents don't deny that their relationship with the petitioners is contractual. They are employees who are working under contracts of employment with Ford and General Motors, and under those contracts of employment, they were entitled to many different types of compensation. But Mr. Yeller, under this argument, wouldn't the 1981 Act have been retroactive in your, the way you're arguing? No, the 1981 statute was prospective only. In other words, it only it, dealt it with... adjusted rights that had accrued for already retired employees, didn't it? Well, and once again, it gets to the question you're talking with Justice O'Connor about. What was the nature of the contract? We say that the contractual understanding was that employers would pay for every period, a subsequent period of disability, the amount was, that was determined to be the lawful amount to pay for workers' compensation benefits. Now, the 1981 statute was prospective only. It changed what the lawful amount was in workers' compensation. It was compensation. a lesser amount. Than it was a somewhat lesser amount, and General Motors and Ford paid that amount lawfully during the period between 1982 and 1987. Mr. You, you take the position that um, these uh, workmen's comp benefits are, in effect, contractual. We do. And, and yet the state court found they were not. Well, the state court part of the contract, the state court as a matter of state law. Well, it's not clear just now. The state court had a sentence in its opinion. Well, what if we think that's what they meant, that as a matter well, of Michigan law, that isn't part of the contract? Now, well, you want us to find as a matter yes. of federal law that it is? 
And I think you can for two reasons. One is there are many, many decisions of this Court, which we've cited in our brief, in which this Court has said that whether or not something is a contract and therefore subject to the protections of the contract clause is a federal question. And this Court has in the past disagreed with statements by state courts that things that looked like contracts were not in fact contracts. Secondly, we don't have a reasoned decision of the Michigan Supreme Court explaining why this is not a contract. And in fact, its statement that this is not a contract is inconsistent with prior decisions of the Michigan Supreme Court in cases like McAvoy and Selk, which have said that the, the obligation of, of employers under the workers' compensation statute on, in Michigan is contractual. So for those two reasons, we think that it's, it's a question for this Court to decide. Mr. Geller, I, I have this, this problem. It, it seems to me the, the uh, whatever else the contracts clause is meant to do, it's it, it certainly meant to protect expectations. And I don't really see that you had any expectations here. Uh, uh, as, as far as you knew, uh, when you enter into a contract to pay whatever Michigan shall say you will pay in the future, not just during the term of employment, but even after he leaves employment, with a disability, Michigan can kick it up as high as it likes, right? Prospectively. Yeah. Yes, well, but so prospectively, a, retrospectively, does, I mean, I, I don't see how any of your contractual expectations have been disappointed. You had no contractual expectations. I think we, I, Justice Scalia, I think there's a substantial difference between the situation where in the future the amount might be increased, might be decreased. We can take that into account in, in deciding what other types of compensation to pay, how to, how to uh, measure the cost of our product. That's quite different. There's a difference. Anything. There's a difference, yeah. but I'm not sure the difference relates to contractual expectations. Well, if you assume, I mean, it may be a due process claim, but I don't see how it's a contract. Oh, we, we clause also claim. have a due process. I know you do make that. I, I have trouble squeezing it under the contracts clause, which I usually well, think is meant to protect. You know, by God, I have a contract. A con it seems your contract says nothing, but I'll pay whatever Michigan says I'll pay, and they say exactly. you pay more. And, and your Honor, that's exactly what the employers in this case did between 1982 and 1987. They paid the exact amounts that Michigan had said they were obligated to pay under their workers' compensation obligation. And they took that into account in making a number of business decisions as to what their expenses were during that period. Oh, but they didn't know until 1985 that they'd, they'd made the right calculation. Well, they... they Four years there, they were... I mean, they, they, they proceeded perfectly lawfully, but you can't say they were darn I sure they were going to... Well, they weren't darn sure, Your Honor, but... They looked at the plain language of the 1981 statute, which draws no distinction between... Uh, no, but it, it bumps into a presumption against retroactively reducing benefits. Well, but, Your Honor, you have to look at the reason why the legislature in 1981 passed this coordination of benefits provision. And I think the, the Michigan Supreme Court in Chambers asked that question. They did it because the, the employers in the state were, fast, were facing extraordinary obligations to pay workers' compensation as well as these other types of employer finance benefits. It would have made no sense to say that the, uh, that the coordination provision provided, applied only to people who got disabled after 19, March 31, 1982, because that would have saved, at least at the outset, an infinitesimal amount of money. The only way that the legislature could have achieved the purpose of the 1981 statute was to make that statute applicable to all payments of workers' compensation payable after March 31, 1982, regardless of when the employees were disabled. But the employers were willing to take the chance that that was a correct interpretation of the statute. Their reliance was found to be completely justified by the uni unanimous decision of the Michigan Supreme Court. Mr. Geller, uh, didn't the 81 statute increase, uh, although it let pension payments uh, be offset against the workman's compensation, didn't the, workman's, the level of workman compensation payments go up? Not in 1981. They had oh, uh, 1980. Uh, in 1980, Justice White, there had been other amendments to the workers' compensation statute. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the effect of those amendments was that for some class of employees, it increased the amount of workers' compensation. But not for people who were hurt before. Well, there was right? — no, that's not true, Your Honor. In 1980 Mich — let me say this to begin with. The other side on the Michigan Supreme Court tries to draw a nexus between the 1980 and 1981 statutes, and they've conjured up this notion that the 1981 statute was, in fact, a way of dealing with a problem caused in 1980, and that it was a trade-off. And people who didn't get benefit increases in 1981, in 1980, were not subject to coordination in 1981. There's absolutely no evidence for the notion that there was a nexus here. There's no suggestion that the 1981 statute was tied to the 1980 statute. But, but let me say that... So that uh, you, you say that the workmen's compensation payments that were due to, after 1981, that were due to employees who were hurt before were the same as uh, the workmen's compensation payments for employees who were hurt after 1981. The obligation to coordinate was exactly the same, and people who were injured prior to 1980 did get an increase in benefits in 1980. You didn't answer my question. The workmen's compensation payments were, the, were, were the, at the same level for both no, no, they may or may or may not have been. There was a different system in place for calculating workers' compensation benefits for people who were injured after 1982. And in some cases, it increased benefits, and in some cases, it didn't. But my point is that well, there was... How about those hurt before uh, 1981? People who were hurt before 1981 were entitled to get supplemental workers' compensation benefits under a statute passed in 1980. And some of these benefits were very substantial. It led to increases of up to 85 percent in their benefits. And those workers' compensation benefits, Justice White, those supplemental benefits, were not subject to coordination. So it is not the case that people who were injured prior to 1982 were much worse off in terms of the amount that they collected uh, than people who were injured after 1982. But the salient point is that there is no nexus between the 1981 and 1980 statutes, and there was not a trade-off. Now, if we're right, what, let me see if I can explain why we think workers' compensation benefits in Michigan are contractual by just using one hypothetical here. If the Michigan statute had said every employer who enters into a contract of employment in the state must include the following terms in the contract, and then they thereafter set out the terms of the workers' compensation package, I think it would be easy for everyone to see why that, would, that became part of the contract. Now, what we suggest is that the situation in Michigan was indistinguishable from that. What the state of Michigan has said is that if you wish to enter a into a contract of employment in the state, you must offer your employees at least the following compens compensation in cases of job-related disability. Would you say the same thing about a minimum wage statute that that's contractual to? Mr. Chief Justice, we would. If, if, if uh, an employer and employee entered into a contract to, to pay the minimum wage in return for work, and if five years later the state decided that the minimum wage had been too low and raised it retroactively, we suggest that there would in fact be a substantial, in addition to due process challenge, contract. So that all the government regulation of conditions of employment become contractual, really? No, right no, 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 Your Honor. I think many regulations are in fact just that, a regulation of the employer. And it's irrelevant whether the employer has contracts of employment or whatever. But the workers' compensation scheme is quite different. There must, under Michigan law, be a contract of employment. The employer is not obligated to pay workers' compensation except in return for work that's done by that employee. It is one form of compensation. Every other form of compensation works its way into the contract. And we say, that, that's the, that is the case with workers' compensation as well. I might say that if the, if the state of Michigan could do this, it could decide, for example, that 
The minimum wage law, as the Chief Justice suggested, was too low during the period 1982 to 1987, and it could pass a statute retroactively increasing the amount of minimum wage and make the employer pay the difference with interest, which is what happened here. No, but this is this workman's compensation is a little different because you got a private version. Anyway, well, supposing they, they added a new kind of injury they hadn't included and said that we've just learned that there are a lot of injured former employees of the automobile companies out there who are injured by certain kind of exposure to something in the plant, and we therefore want to retroactively have compensation for them. Would that be permissible? I think it might well raise problems under the contracts clause, although the reliance interest... It would be pretty close to the coal miners case, wouldn't it? Well, but, you know, the Turner-Elkhorn case, Your Honor, which was not, of course, a contracts clause case, was a, a law that was retroactive in the secondary sense only. It did not go back and impose new obligations for past periods of time. All it said is that henceforth you have to pay workers' compensation to a particular category of employees. So it was not at all like that. That's why I said earlier this is an extraordinary type of law, and I don't know that this Court has ever, ever upheld a decision, a statute of this type. But it seems to me if, if you have contracted to, to pay whatever Michigan law says in the future, even after the person has left your employment, that's what you say the contract is, we'll pay whatever Michigan says in the future. Why can't you have promised to say we'll pay whatever Michigan says we should pay in the future, including if, we, if Michigan changes its mind and goes back and decides that we should have paid more for some earlier period. If I mean, if you buy into some of Michigan well, law, yes, why can't you buy into all of Michigan law, in which case there's no contracts clause violation? It's a question, Justice Scalia, of what the contractual expectations are. Now, if there had been a history of that sort of legislation, I think that there would be a stronger argument. But as Always I has to be a first time. Well, I think the question is whether on the, on the first occasion that it can be imposed retroactively in light of the reliance interest. Now, even if we're wrong in our contracts clause challenge, let me sp spend a few minutes on the due process clause, because the due process clause independently imposes substantial limits on a state's ability to retroactively enact civil legislation. And once, important, once again, I think it's very important to distinguish between the two types of retroactive legislation mentioned earlier. There are many cases of this Court upholding legislation that was retroactive in the sense of imposing future legal consequences on past events. All of the cases that respondents rely on, such as Turner-Elkhorn, fall in that category. But the Court has taken a quite different approach when dealing with statutes that are retroactive in this primary sense, statutes that change the law in the past, that change the past legal consequences of past events. In that type of case, the Court has upheld retroactive statutes against the due process challenge in only two situations that we're aware of. Now, the first situation, which usually arises in tax cases, is where Congress has imposed a short period of retroactivity to prevent people from rearranging their affairs to evade pending legislation. The Gray case is a good example of that. That's certainly not our case here. We're not dealing with a short period of retroactivity to evade pending legislation. Now, the second type of case involves so-called curative legislation. The, the Court on several occasions has upheld retroactive statutes that cured inadvertent technical defects in prior legislation. The Heinsohn case, for example, where there was a tariff in effect, but there was a technical defect in it. Congress reenacted the tariff and made it retroactive to the date of the original tariff. There's no problem in that type of case because it doesn't destroy any reliance interests. Such laws can't upset any settled expectations because they, in fact, reaffirm what everyone always thought to be the law. On the other hand, this Court has said that retroactive laws that represent changes in legislative policy can't be imposed retroactively because of the fundamental unfairness of imposing new rules of conduct 
on people who've, had, who've engaged in past completed transactions under different rules of law. And the classic case for this type of retroactive legislation is the Forbes Pioneer case, where the state tried to enact a toll and make it retroactive four years to a time when a ship had passed through the, the uh, canal thinking that there was no toll. Now, with these as the relevant categories, we think it's easy to see where the 1987 statute falls. The state of Michigan, in its, in its brief, concedes the 1987 statute was plainly just a change in legislative policy. It was not a curative law intended to remedy an inadvertent defect. It changed the law during a five-year period in the past. There were many, many settled transactions during that five-year period that were completely upset. Had the legislature passed resolutions earlier uh, saying they had never intended the In 1982, that, Justice uh, O'Connor. Supreme Court. Yes. In 1982, Supreme. Justice O'Connor, the legislature had passed resolutions saying they didn't intend the 1981. But there are two things to be said about that. First is, those resolutions had no retroactive aspects to them. They were intended to operate only prospectively. And second, and more importantly, in 1982, the legislature defeated a bill, defeated a bill that would have amended the 1981 statute to make it apply only to people who were uh, injured uh, after March 31, 1982. So I think that's another reason why the employers have strong reliance. Because they system. wouldn't have taken care of the people from 81 to 82, isn't that right? Perhaps not, but it would have taken care of a large, a large percentage of the people. Your Honor, if there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Geller. Mr. Sachs, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The appeal to the contract clause is an extraordinary one, uh, particularly in that it does not avail the petitioners at all. And I think it's important to get the facts and the history straight. Mr. Romaine and Mr. Gonzalez, like other employees or former employees similarly situated, had worked for decades for these employers. During the entire time of their employment and other similarly situated employees, the Michigan Workers' Compensation Statute forbade, expressly prohibited, any kinds of set-offs or coordination as it is currently called. These uh, respondents, Mr. Romaine and Mr. Gonzalez, worked through their course of employment until Mr. Romaine was disabled in 1977 in serious injuries. I misspoke myself, Mr. Romaine. Mr. Gonzalez was disabled from silicosis in 1981. Through all of these decades until the moment they were injured and became disabled, Michigan law expressly prohibited any kind of set-off or coordination. During all this time, moreover, contrary to petitioner's statements, there was not a statement under Michigan law that there was a contract of any variety. There are several Michigan cases, they are cited in our brief, in which the court said precisely the opposite. And indeed, ironically, when General Motors argued to the Michigan Supreme Court in the Chambers case, it made precisely the argument that Michigan did not respect workers' compensation as an aspect of contract and we've appended the General Motors brief in the Chambers case as Appendix A to our own brief here, showing that General Motors' position at that time was diametrically opposite to the position asserted here. The Michigan Supreme Court had never, I, I, I'm about to overstate it, prior to 1943, the Michigan statute was elective. After that time, it was compulsory. 
And then in the recent cases of the court, the court recognized the fact that it was compulsory. Employers had no options to modify this law at all. They could not agree to any changes. They could not vary anything. There was no right of contract. There was no mutual assent. There was no knowledge required. And with respect to the characterization, by the way, that this was an at-will contract, insofar as these employees are concerned, that was, of course, not the case. These employees were members of the UAW bargaining unit. were complaining uh, were already retired and not employees any longer. That is precisely correct, Your Honor, because what happened... Uh, I suppose the union uh, probably didn't have any interest in what... Uh, GM did to these former retirees? Well, I wouldn't go that far, uh, with all respect. Well, it wasn't, must, must not have been a bargainable issue. It was not a bargainable issue, and under the law of this court, it could not have been a bargainable issue, because once these employees right. re retired, yeah. they ceased to be employees by definition. And accordingly, when the 1981 amendments occurred, these were no longer employees who would have had any employment contract into which to incorporate the workers' compensation quotes contract. So the, the argument is uh, extremely paradoxical. The claim is made that we have a contract. What's the contract? Well, the contract, you're told, is anything the legislature says in the future. Now, that's I think a, the claim is it was the prior contract, that the term of the prior contract when they were employed was that the employer would pay to them in the future whatever the then-applicable Michigan law requires. I understand that, Justice I mean, It makes sense, uh, you know, whether you accept it or not. Well, Justice Clee, of course, I don't accept it. And, of course, there's nothing in the Michigan case law or the Michigan statute which supports any such interpretation. The, courts re the Michigan court has rejected generally the notion that there's any kind of contract. It certainly, therefore, did not upset a, accept a subset of promise where there's no promise at all that employers will be obligated to accept anything that comes down the pike in the future. That's the last thing in the world the legislature would have intended or that employers would uh, have been agreeable to. So that when in 1981 the, quotes coordination is agreed to as part of a general accommodation of values by the legislature and policy judgments are made, on the one hand, to increase uh, workers' compensation benefits prospectively, in part to be financed and through the resources of the coordination, but dealing only with future injuries. That is a determination made in the legitimate policy judgment of the Michigan legislature, not as a matter of contract, but obviously in the exercise of its police powers regulating the workplace in this important area. This court recognized in 1917 that this is a legitimate exercise of of police powers of the state to protect the, the serious interests that are involved. Suppose, suppose they did this with a minimum wage. Suppose Michigan just said, um, uh, we've had a few years of good prosperity. The auto companies are doing pretty well. Uh, we're going to say that the minimum wage you should have paid five years ago is going to be raised, and you should pay everybody in cash the difference. Is that lawful? The answer to your question, Your Honor, would depend upon all the facts and circumstances under due process scrutiny, not under contract scrutiny. And the issue there, for example, to, to uh, expand on that. Okay, I, I don't, are you going to deal with the due process arguments later? Yes, I will. If, if You'll answer this question. Then. I, I hope to, Your Honor. Uh, what, what happened when the judgments and accommodations were made in 1980 and 81, contrary to the suggestion of counsel, was not that there was any fat increase of benefits for the workers who were already retired, 
There was a nominal so-called supplemental increase payable by the state, not by employers, which by case law has been generally inapplicable to virtually everybody who might otherwise be affected and is insignificant in its application. But let's take the history a little further so we get this factual context straight. What happened was in 1982, when General Motors and Ford apparently alone took on this aggressive posture of trying to interpret uh, the statutory amendments, as other employers were not doing, including their competitor Chrysler, uh, to say that this was retrospective as to people uh, who were injured prior to 1981, the legislature responded with resolutions uh, which said that there was never the intention of this legislation to deal retroactively as to these people who were previously injured. And I do not recall the history that counsel recites that there was a failure in the legislature to enact new legislation. There was no reason for the legislature to enact new legislation. They enacted the resolutions. Then throughout the entire administrative process which followed, throughout the entire uh, lower court judicial process that followed, the position of General Motors and Ford were consistently and universally rejected. It was not until the Michigan Supreme Court spoke in 1985 that General Motors prevailed. And it prevailed, again, on arguments diametrically opposed to the arguments which are being made here. There was immediate revulsion, and I don't think that's an overstatement, to the decision that the court had reached. Because it was... Immediate revulsion on the part of whom? On the part, I think, of... People generally, certainly on the part of the legislature, on the part of the former governor who had sponsored the coordination proposition in the first place, the administrative officers who had administered it and who had sponsored it as well, as far as the public generally. And indeed, the author of the opinion in chambers concluded within weeks following on a motion for rehearing that the methodology of the court was wrong and that she had erred and, and she acknowledged harsh and unforeseen circumstances. This is part of the decision in the Chamber's case in terms of what was then a denial of rehearing. Now, contrary to the suggestion that there's a two-year period, as I heard counsel say, what immediately happened was that it, within weeks, there was legislation which was introduced into the House by January of 1986, within four or five weeks after the introduction of that legislation, it had passed the House of Representatives in Michigan, which did exactly what the law ultimately enacted did. So, and what was involved there, counsel decries understandably the, the uh, retroactivity, but what the legislature was seeking to correct was retroactivity, because this was the first time in some 75 years in the history of the Michigan statute that there ever had been a cutback in workers' benefits, whether retroactively or prospectively. He errs with all respect when he says there has not been, there had not been, rather, retroactive legislation or amendments of the Workers' Comp Act affecting employers. They're assembled in footnote one of our brief. The court had several times spoken retroactively in a primary sense as well as a secondary sense in making adjustments where there was a conclusion that such adjustments were necessary. In the Michigan court, in the, in the Lottie case, in the Rookledge case, and several other cases mentioned there, had acted in that form. So that what this was all about, to make a long story short, was... Those, those were upward adjustments? I beg your pardon, Your Honor. Those were upward adjustments, the primary retroactivity cases? Yes, Michigan Supreme Court. Uh, upward for how long? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I misunderstood uh, your question, Your Honor. For how long? 
There were, if it might be more specific, please. There, first of all, there was an increase in uh, compensation periods for health and welfare benefits. That was the Lottie case. There was originally a 24-month limit. The court extended that to later times. The Selk case involved retroactivity regarding previously unpaid interest on workers' compensation award. The Rooklich case, which we discussed in the footnote, dealt with the issue of whether an injured worker had to make a binding election as to whether to accept workers' compensation or alternatively uh, to sue a third-party tortfeasor. Did, did any or all of those statutes you mentioned have the effect of reopening past pay periods? There isn't. No, not as such, Your Honor, because there is no such thing under the Michigan statute as a closed period. The statute through all of the decades involved did it, here... Did, it, did they require a retroactive calculation and payment for past months? No, because, Your Honor, there never had been an occasion before... Well, well then, then why do you say that it was... Uh, there was primary retroactivity in, in the sense that the petitioner's counsel's... Because I was habit. starting to explain in the Rookledge case, for example, where there, an election had previously been required as between accepting a workers' comp benefit or suing a third-party tortfeasor, the legislature declared that that election was no longer required by an amendment to the Workers' Compensation Act, and the Michigan Supreme Court construed that to be retroactive the causes of action which arose prior to the amendment, thereby reactivating a claim which had previously been waived. So that in well, that, that, that didn't require any uh, increased payments on the part of the employer? Well, Your Honor, that's correct. It did not. This was the first time... Yeah, that would be just simply like waiving a, st a statute of limitations, which we have held is permissible. Uh, no, Your Honor. It, it, it was... I, I, yes, I know you have so held, but what it is... What the court had said in the earlier cases was that the election was a fatal one, not statute of limitation, but a permanent and irrevocable election. And the court, in effect, reinstated a claim that did not previously exist. More pertinently to the present circumstances, the reason why the action was taken here and had in the legislative judgment, which I suggest is the dispositive fact, had to be taken here was that this was the first time in 75 years where the legislature, at least as construed in the opinion of the legislature misconstrued by the Michigan Supreme Court, had reduced benefits. And the only way that could be dealt with, if it was to be rectified, was responding to the particular action which had occurred. Uh, what I was starting to cite earlier, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, was that Section 831 of the Act, which existed through all this period, said that, quotes, neither the payment of compensation or the accepting of the same by the employee or his dependents shall be considered as a determination of the rights of the parties under this Act, so that there could be no claim of reliance. The Act expressly foreclosed that possibility because payment itself or the receipt of benefits was non-determinative. If I may, I want to zero in on the extraordinary proposition that's urged by General Motors and Ford under contract clause theory, they say, that uh, what the Michigan legislature has said not only is that there is, a, is workers' compensation a contract, when the Michigan law is, is quite to the contrary, uh, but also it's a contract which accepts anything that occurs down the road. That, I would suggest, reduces the contract clause claim to utter incoherence. The theory of, the, of their original brief theory was that there's a contract clause claim because it's supposed to incorporate 
all of this other external law. But that's the existing external law. One doesn't incorporate law that comes down later and make a contract claim theory. Then in turn, when these injured workers cease to be employees, there is no employment contract uh, into which to incorporate their claim. And if then the claim is, the, the contractual theory, is that we accept anything that comes down later, that reduces us all to nonsense because ultimately what they're saying is, uh, as phrased in your question, Justice Scalia, the last enactment is what the employer has promised long ago to abide by. Well, that hardly is the notion or concept or purpose of the contract clause, which is supposed to, in the petitioner's view, and at least in the history, to give some confidence uh, in terms of reliance and expectation. There's no expectation. These petitioners can hardly claim to be able to plan their affairs if they're going to be vulnerable to whatever the Michigan legislature does much later. Mr. Now, Sachs, uh, the petitioner in his argument said he thought his strongest case was the Forbes case. And in the petitioner's brief, that case is mentioned three times. You do not mention it all in, in your brief. Do you have any response to it? I don't think Forbes is applicable here, Your Honor. Forbes was simply a case of retroactivity without any equitable justification, increasing tolls several years earlier. That's not the case that we have here. What we have here is a specific response to a judicial decision deemed to be misconstrued, and whether or not accurately misconstrued, and we suggest that it was, correcting harsh and unexpected developments which occurred. Now, that's a classic case in which retroactivity has occurred. The classic instance, indeed, is, are the portal-to-portal -portal cases decided by hundreds of courts, hundreds, literally hundreds of federal courts, hundreds of federal judges unanimously saying that in that instance it was perceived that the decision of this court in Mount Clements Pottery upset settled expectations as the interpretation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And there, General Motors and Ford led the litigants in reaching back, to use their phrase, nine years to correct what was perceived to be a misconstruction of the court with unexpected consequences. That was an act of Congress, wasn't it? That was an act of Congress, but uh, in terms of due process analysis, which what conceitedly was involved there, there was found to be no problem. Uh, that never came to this court. Well, this, this court denied certiorari hundreds of times, and as one court said, well, customarily, a denial of cert, of course, imports nothing as to the meaning on the merits. Uh, the assertion, at least, of that appellate court was when it's denied hundreds of times, perhaps it has some greater significance. Learned Hand, among many other distinguished jurists, uh, found no difficulty uh, in the conclusions reached. And again, General Motors and Ford were arguing exactly the opposite. Moreover, Your Honor, uh, in terms uh, of due process analysis, and I do want to be responsive to Justice Scalia's earlier question, it seems to me that the holdings and the reasoning of, of Turner Elkhorn and of PBGC, Sperry, as well as the portal to portal cases, conceded, the latter concededly not by this court, are really dispositive here. There has to be a way, and it has been recognized repeatedly in the decisions, to deal with errors which occur along the way or with conditions which were not anticipated and require attention. The black lung cases are a classic example. 
That, that means Mr. Geller that, says they're not retroactive in the same sense as these. I would concede that, Your Honor. They were not, re- they, they were not retroactive in the sense of being curative, but that makes the point. There, this Court upheld legislation where there was plainly a change in policy by the Congress. The Congress concluded that because of the long period of latency of the black lung disease, the the prevalence, the seriousness of the problems which were not apparent, it made appropriate sense in terms of the adjustments of the benefits and burdens of economic life, to use the Court's phrase, to impose liability not as a matter of contract but as a matter of the judgment of the Congress in that instance, to impose liability on employers with respect to what these employers call completed transactions, namely employees who have long since terminated their employment but for whom an obligation is imposed. PBGC said essentially the same thing. There was retroactivity there not only in the so-called window period of a few months before the enactment of the Multi-Employer Pension Plan Amendments Act, but also, in effect, imposing liability going back decades as to employers who had never assumed pension liabilities at all in the sense of having to fund what were theretofore unfunded liabilities. So that in Turner-Elkhorn and in PBGC, we have not curative but straight retroactive legislation as to which there is no problem. This Court has found no problem. So so your answer to the minimum wage one is that's okay? You you can pass? The answer to the minimum wage is that it is not necessarily okay. The retroactivity might or might not be acceptable dependent upon the purpose that it may be perceived by the legislature in reaching that conclusion. Just as the legislature may make judgments, Your Honor. They decided they didn't give them enough money, that's all. They decided uh, we should have given them more money. I think that may be questionable under those circumstances if there is not more involved. There is obviously minimum scrutiny. There has to be deference under the Court's holdings. Uh, There is a presumption of constitutionality, and all of that is at play. But then one has to inquire as to the circumstances under which that may be done. There may be, there conceivably can be circumstances where there can be that retroactivity. There may be circumstances where it's inappropriate. This Court found in Spanhaus an inappropriate circumstance. You equating the contract clause with due process? No, Your Honor. Uh, but I, uh, when you say there was minimum scrutiny, are you, are you talking about the due process? Yes, clause? Your Honor. Not the contract clause? That, that's correct. But Spanhaus was a contract clause case. You're absolutely correct, Your Honor. Of course, uh, when this Court has applied the elements of energy reserves and come to the question of uh, legitimacy of public purpose and the appropriateness of the means applied, there has been a deferential standard. Uh, and, and therefore, some minimization of scrutiny in those circumstances, particularly in an extraordinarily highly regulated area such as workers' compensation. There is a particular need in the area of workers' compensation to be able to deal with retroactivity just as Congress, the states have to be able to deal with it just as Congress did it in the, in the black lungs case. As medical science developed, as increasing problems are realized in terms of the latency of diseases and prolonged development, there has to be an ability to relate back and to deal with those. There equally has to be an ability 
to deal with the problems which arise in terms of the imperfect expression in legislation or where harsh and unforeseen consequences occur as occurred here. The briefs of the United States amicus in this case, uh, the brief of the uh, Council of State Governments amicus in this case, uh, develop, I think, extremely well and at length. Wait, I mean, I don't know what you mean by there has to be some way to solve the problem. Michigan could have solved the problem. They could have taken Michigan funds and paid these people more money. They could have said, gee, we made a terrible mistake. It's our fault. Here, here's some more money. The only question is whether this employer should be hit with it. Your Honor, that is correct. That was an option, but it was not a required option, which is the key. Tell me it's necessary to, you know, in, in some well, uh, it was absolute it, sense to correct them. No, I'm not suggesting an absolute sense, Your Honor, but I'm suggesting that in the legislative judgment as to what was moral and to correct terrible injustice here and terrible hardship and a thoroughly unexpected development, the legislature deemed it appropriate to do all that it did do, which was to restore the status quo ante. It recreated the original expectations, if there were expectations, of everybody affected. It imposed no greater liability on Ford and GM than they had any legitimate right to expect in the first place. The relief granted was surgically tailored. Mr. Sen, isn't the Chamber's opinion of the Supreme Court of Michigan uh, a pretty fair characterization of what they had a legitimate right to expect? Your Honor? The opinion of the highest court of the state saying what the legislature meant. It was the the Michigan Supreme Court applying a rule of construction and no more, as by its own acknowledgement, concluded that because the legislature had not adequately indicated an intention not to apply to previous injuries, that the act would not be construed to exclude the application to those injuries. Well, that's just a long way around of saying they construed the law uh, and it is, is to what the, what the law meant, and that, that's they're, they're the final authority. Not the final authority, with all respect, Mr. Chief Justice, because then there's another case before the Michigan Supreme Court, namely this case. And in the interim, the Michigan legislature has spoken. And the Michigan legislature... Well, you're, you're talking then about another law, not the law that the Michigan uh, Supreme Court construed in chambers. I'm talking now about the current law, Your Honor. Yeah. And, and my point is that when the Michigan Supreme Court, having seen what the legislature did in 1987, and concluding that as a matter of state law, whether the Michigan Supreme Court liked deemed that consistent with its own ruling or not, concluded that as a matter of Michigan law, the legislature had the right to repair the damage yeah, that was done the first time. That's quite a different point than saying uh, the Ford and GM had no expectations whatever uh, based on the 1982 statute, because the Supreme Court of Michigan, when it construed that statute, well, conf- conformed them. Plainly, Your Honor, they had no expectations based on the Chamber's decision, which didn't come down until 1985, the, end, the last day in 1985. For all the years preceding that, every expression, legislative, administrative, and lower court, was contrary to their position. So there could have been no claim of reliance. They knew as well that all of their competitors that the rest of industry and others interpreted differently. So they, whatever view they were asserting was a controversial view and not based on any expression by the highest court. The decision to which Your Honor relates, again, only came at the end of 1985, 
some 16 months before the new legislation was adopted and only a few weeks before the House spoke. So there was never a period when General Motors and Ford had any legitimate reason to believe that this matter was final until the legislature indeed finally spoke. Prior to December 1985, this was a matter that was highly contested, with every authority dealing with the matter rejecting their view. Afterward, the legislature in one house had spoken, the matter was in ferment, and finally the legislature spoke with the Michigan Supreme Court concluding that they had the authority to do so. This is the final analysis, a matter uh, of state determination, the exercise of its judgment. Council began by talking about whether the legislature originally had authority to reach this accommodation. Of course it did. It could have concluded that there should be offset. It could, could, could have concluded, as it had for decades before, there should not be offset. It made that judgment. It made that judgment in the exercise of its police powers. Council points to workers' comp, but under the theory of contract which they urge, they would have to, in quotes, incorporate OSHA laws, EEO laws, labor laws, minimum wage laws, ordinary labor laws. There is no law which affects the workplace which, under their theory, would not be incorporated. And where does that lead? That, under a contract theory, under their theory, there is absolutely no distinction between contract and due process. That's not the law of this court. It's not the law of Michigan. It's not been the law anywhere, and there's no justification for that position. For those reasons, unless the court has questions, uh, I would conclude. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Sachs. Uh, Mr. Geller, you have one minute remaining. <clears throat> Just a few things, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> to begin with, Mr. Sachs claims that he is unaware of the fact that the legislature in 1982 defeated a bill that would have uh, made the 1981 statute apl applicable only to people injured after 1982. But I would refer the court to page 43A of the appendix to the petition, footnote 24, where that, the defeat of that bill is, is mentioned. Secondly, uh, Mr. Sachs spent almost none of his time on the due process clause today. The Chief Justice asked him about the Forbes case. What he said about the Forbes case is that this court held that statute unconstitutional because it was not rational. But it was plainly rational to require people to pay for passage through a canal. Uh, why, should they get, why should they go through a canal for free? The statute was struck down not because it wasn't rational to charge people for going through a canal, but because the statute completely destroyed reliance interests of people who had gone through the canal thinking that it was toll-free. That's why it was struck down. Now, the basic notion of due process is fundamental fairness, and one of the basic notions of fundamental fairness is notice, and that's what we're arguing for here today. Now, we claim that General Motors... Thank you, Mr. Geller. Thank you, Mr. The case is submitted. <laughs>